Thank you, Fred, for the introduction. Today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about betrayal in the Bible. Have you ever been betrayed before? Perhaps you're, as a child, your friend took your toy. Or maybe your friend in high school stole your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Or perhaps a close friend stabbed you in the back by talking about you behind your back or telling on you. Maybe a coworker, a rival, or even a boss stole your promotion. Maybe somebody published something that you had thought about and written or preached on something before you got a chance to do it yourself. Something even worse, what if your mate had cheated on you and betrayed you in that fashion? So today I'd like to explore some of the betrayals in the Bible and draw some conclusions about these betrayals. First, I'd like to start with a definition from the American Heritage 5th Edition Dictionary. And the first definition is to give aid or information to an enemy of, commit treason against. Number two, to inform upon or deliver into the hands of an enemy in violation of a trust or an allegiance. And then three, to be false or disloyal to. So let's start with the most memorable betrayal ever in the Bible. Let's turn to Matthew 26 and look at Judas's betrayal to Jesus Christ. Matthew 26, 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. And he said, What are you willing to give me? And I will deliver him up to you. And they offered him thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought an opportunity to betray him. Two things I'd like to take from the scripture. One, that was that thirty pieces of silver was the price of a dead slave. In the Old Testament, if a man had an ox, an owner of an ox had an ox that was gored somebody, and he gored and killed a slave, then he had to compensate the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver. And so that was what the slave's life was worth, 30 pieces of silver. And that's what Jesus was in a sense, to us, he was our Passover lamb, and he paid the price for us as a servant. The other thing is, it says that from that time, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. This is just bizarre. He hadn't done it yet, but what could have been going through his mind? Why would he have thought that? Why would Judas have even considered going and selling out his master, his Lord. And by the way, the Sermon on the Mount had already occurred, right? This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus had already elevated the level of the law to our minds. It's that we had a greater onus from the Sermon on the Mount. So if Judas is thinking the thoughts of vanity to sell out his master... Is he not sinning already? Well, we'll look into this a little bit more. Here, Hold your place here. Let's turn to Acts 1 and verse 17. And it's talking, Acts 1, 17, and this is when they were having to, the disciples were waiting 
in Jerusalem for the Pentecost to be fulfilled, for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And it was said here in Acts one seventeen, for he was numbered with us and had obtained a part of this ministry. So Judas had a full part of the ministry. Interesting, huh? Let's turn to Matthew 10. We'll come back to this Matthew 26 in just a little bit. Okay, Matthew 10, verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every kind of sickness. Wow, that's some an amazing authority. And by the way, this is before the disciples even had God's Spirit. That Holy Spirit hadn't come down on high, from on high yet. So they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but God gave them the, the authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. Amazing. What a responsibility. But now let's see who what he did here. He names the 12 disciples, and they're not only disciples. What does he call them even before his death? Verse 2, now the names of the 12 apostles. Judas was one of the 12 apostles. And we'll see that here. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. Let's drop down now to verse 4. Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Judas was named among the 12 apostles. Judas had a very close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Judas was sent out with the 70. He was one of the 70 who went out and they came back to Jesus amazed saying, even the unclean spirits obey in your name. When we call on your name, we are able to cast out the unclean spirits. Judas had that power. Judas was entrusted with that power. Not only was he that close to Jesus, he was one of the 70, but he was closer than the other 58 because he was part of the 12, right? He was part of the 12 that was chosen out of the 70. So closer than the 70, he was in the inner sanctum, the close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He had such a closeness, such a proximity such a personal relationship, a pure intimacy with Jesus Christ that few ever had. Here he was an apostle. As we'll see, Judas was not only at Jesus' last Passover, but he also had Jesus Christ wash his feet. Let's turn now to John 13. And while we're Turning to John 13, I'll just cite something. And in Mark 14, 10 and 11, it says that the chief priests were delighted that Judas had come to them. And he sought, Judas sought, how he might conveniently betray Jesus Christ. So Judas wanted to make it easy on himself. He wanted to figure out a way how he could betray Jesus. And he was looking for the opportunity. Is it not sin in his mind already? He hadn't done the deed yet. He hadn't sinned. 
but he's working out a plan of how he could betray the master. John 13, let's look at um, verses 1 and 2. Now before the feast of Passover, knowing that his time had come to depart from this world to the Father, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. Jesus loved all of his disciples, all of the people that he was working with, all of mankind, all of humanity, and especially the disciples, the apostles, until the very end. That includes Judas. Verse 2, And during supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, that he should betray him. Now let's jump to uh, verse 5. Next he poured water into a washing basin. This is Jesus, of course. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel which he had secured. You know the story here. Peter says, not me, Lord. You know, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, hey, look, if I don't, then you have no part with me. Uh, Let's look at uh, 10. And Jesus said, the one who has been washed does not need any washing other than the feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew the one who was betraying him. Do you see that? That's a present tense participle. It's actively doing it. Judas was actively betraying him right then at that point. He was in the act of sin in his mind. This was the reason he said, not all of you are clean. Therefore, when he had washed their feet. So we see that he had washed all of the disciples' feet as an example. And interesting, he was being and acting as the doulos, the servant of the apostles. Okay, verse 18. This is very interesting. And I'm not speaking of you all, for I know whom I have chosen. Jesus himself chose Judas to be his betrayer. But Jesus chose Judas in order that the scripture might be filled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 21. And as he was saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I tell you, one of you shall betray me. Oh, wow. 26 and 7. Jesus said, It is the one, they were all asking, Lord, is it I? Is it I? It is the one to whom I shall give a sop after I had dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, interesting, Jesus appears to be speaking to the man, right? It's the man standing right in front of him that Jesus addresses to. But he's actually speaking to Satan, the devil. And he's saying, you have a job to do. Go get it done. Go take care of it. And what you have to do, do quickly. Now let's turn back to Matthew 26, verses 21 to 23. And here's where I was trying to get to with this this betrayal and the lesson that we can learn from Passover that we could take with us, possibly take with us throughout the year. 
Matthew 26, 21 through 23. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you shall betray me. And being sorely grieved, each of them began to say to him, Am I the one, Lord? Well, he could have answered yes to each of them. Could he not? Because would they not all have sinned and betrayed him and caused his death, his sacrifice to be applied to them personally, just as it is to us? And he answered, verse 23, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish, he shall betray me. So what I'd like to do is try to use this term as a mnemonic aid that we can use throughout the year for us to keep our hands out of the dish. Keep your hands out of the dish. Me, I need to keep my hands out of the dish so that I don't betray my Lord and Savior. If we can use that as a mnemonic aid to keep our hands out of the dish, we can think of that every time we're working towards finding out a devious plan and figuring something out in our minds and saying, oh, what about this? How would that happen? Oh, can we do that? Ooh. And sin blossoms like an evil flower. See, every time we sin, we betray God the Father and Jesus Christ. Every time we commit that sin... Even after we've had this deep intimacy with Jesus Christ and God the Father, we betray that intimacy just as as Judas did. And it starts in the mind. And it's not only a betrayal of them, but it's also a betrayal of our faith. So even the thoughts of unrighteousness can be a sin and can be a betrayal to God. Look at uh, verses 24 and the first of 25, 25a. The Son of Man indeed goes, as it has been written concerning him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Again, does that not apply to all of us? Certainly, he's talking specifically about Judas in this passage. But if we can take the Jesus Christ sacrifice and apply it to us individually, personally, (laughs) we are those betrayers. And we'll bring this home a little bit more later. And, by the way, it would have been better for him if that man had not been born. The key thing here is repentance. As much as we betray God, we can still repent. And how thankful we are for the opportunity and the blessing to be able to repent, right? Wow. Verse 25a. Then Judas who was betraying him, betraying him right then at that moment in his mind, even though he had not done the deed. So listen, when the thoughts come into our minds, that's not sin. The thoughts of vanity can be insinuated into our minds. We can think a thought. But the sin comes when we dwell on it, when we mull it over and try to flesh it out and think about it and how we could do this. And then sin, we see the process of sin. Just the thought of vanity is not sin because in James 1, you know, it tells us the process and the starting thoughts are not sin. But as we mull it over and we think about it 
And that, then it becomes sin for us. The initial thoughts, when the initial thoughts come, put it out of our minds. No, that's not for me. I don't want that. Lord Jesus Christ, please help me. God the, God the Father in heaven, I ask you for your help so that I can put sin far away from me. Didn't David say that? The thoughts of vanity are in his mind. And he said, that he, I didn't want that. And had I been thinking these thoughts of vanity, certainly you would not have heard me. So when the thoughts of vanity come, we can put it out immediately. Get rid of it. Let's turn now to Psalm 77. And as previously mentioned, you know, Jesus had elevated Psalm 77, the law to our minds and how we handle the thoughts of evil and the thoughts of vanity. Because Satan is always continuously striving to input Satan and his demonic world are trying to put satanic, evil, wrong thoughts in our heads. How often do we listen to those thoughts? Now, Psalm 77. This is a very interesting psalm. Asaph, the psalmist Asaph, sets the stage for the psalm by expressing sadness and despair, frustration, and even anger at God for what he erroneously perceived as an error on God's part. Please let me make this perfectly clear, because this has been misunderstood in the times past. God does not sin. God is not an error. God does nothing wrong. God has no culpability. His motivations are pure. His agenda is to bring us into his kingdom, into his family. God has no evil inclination. God is purest of pure. However, we sometimes erroneously blame God. Why would we do that? Well, I prayed for this situation and God didn't answer. Or I prayed for this person and she died. God didn't answer my prayer. Or... It didn't happen in my time frame, in the time frame that I wanted. I wanted it to happen now, but God didn't do it. God is not on our time frame, by the way. (laughs) We have to get on God's page. God doesn't have to get on our page, right? So anytime we blame God, it's an error on our part. God is sinless. God does not sin. Okay? I just want to make that perfectly clear. Now, Asaph positions his and expresses his wrong perspective. And in the first nine verses, it's all him crying out and showing where God is, uh, where he's saddened and where he's frustrated and anxious. Okay, let's just read through it. I cried to God. This is Psalm 77 verse 1. I cried to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. So God heard him, but the implication is, is that God did nothing. That God wasn't responding to him. Because, it says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was lifted up, and my soul, and and my tears ceased not in the night. My soul refused to be comforted. I'm in a bad place. I'm just so sad. I remembered God and was troubled It's like, I called to God and and he didn't answer me. You know? I moaned and my spirit fainted. 
Silah. Now, Salah is very interesting. It means think about it or repeat this. So let's repeat it, okay? I remembered God and I was troubled because God didn't answer me. I moaned and my spirit fainted. Verse 4, you keep my eyes awake. I can't sleep because of this. This trouble is so great. I am too troubled and I cannot speak. Have you ever had that experience where you're just on the verge of tears and if you even open your mouth to say something, you're, you're, you're just, just going to start babbling? <laughs> just crying? I have pondered the days of old, the years of ages past. I remembered my song in the night. I commune with my own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Now, what is he doing here? This is all negative self-talk. It's not positive self-talk. He's not fleeing to God to, as his high tower or his, his shield and fight. He's not looking to God and saying, help me through this trial. He's looking back and reminiscing and saying, well, where was God when all this is, was occurring? Why isn't God answering me? Verse 7, will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is he going to throw me away like a worn out tool? Where is his favor to me? I used to enjoy his favor and now it's gone. Verse 8, is his mercy gone forever? Can you hear the man crying? Is his mercy gone forever? Has his promise failed for all generations? God gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised, made promises to Moses. He led the children of Israel out. He gave promise after promise. And yet God's not answering those promises in my life. And I'm just adding input here, trying to read between the lines, seeing what the psalmist Asaph is talking about, because he's in anguish and frustration here. Has his promise failed for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger? Is he mad at me? Has he shut up his tender mercies? Silah. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? Now, now, we see that there's something that happened to Asaph right here. Because he realizes his error, he realizes his wrong, and he sees a way out of his problem, his dilemma. And God helped him to see it. And in verse 10, verse 10 is the bridge, it's the transition from the plaintiff wailing and moaning and frustration and anguish and even anger to thankfulness and thanksgiving and praising God in the second half of the psalm. And what does he do? He quotes himself. He says, and I said, this is my grief that the right hand of the Most High could change. Now, there's a couple ways that I can think of that this could be interpreted, and perhaps you have another way. But the first way is that he wanted God to change and do things his way. He wanted God to do his will. The second one is that the right hand of God is no longer delivering blessings to him, and mercies have been taken away. Either way, he's expressing that can you believe I even thought this? I was thinking the same thoughts of vanity that even the prophet Job was in thinking that God was wrong and that he needed a betwixtman 
And he thought that God was in error and that he was right. Asaph's saying the same thing. I was so wrong. I thought that God was wrong. And now, how could I have even thought of such silliness? Now, what does he say? Now the bridge goes into something and it's praise and it's righteousness. Verse 11, and I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old, how he led the children of Israel through this Red Sea on dry land, how he delivered time and time again, how he helped David, how he fought the battles for the ancient Israelites and specific individuals, how he worked miracles through the judges. I will meditate on all your work and talk of your doings. Your way, O God, is in holiness. Who is so great a God as our God? Nobody. There is no God that's as great as our God. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the people. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Silah. Before I repeat it, let me say, might he be hearkening back when he mentions God's arm back to verse 10 when he says the right hand of the Most High could change when he was saying that that was the bridge from the old, bad, wrong, evil man that we're commissioned to bury every day when we repent and of sin. But he could be referring to God's arm who gave deliverance again. So let's read verse 15 again. You have with your arm redeemed your people. He's paid for the, the price of redemption. How did he pay the price of redemption? First, with ancient Israel, through the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And he paid that price to redeem Israel out of Egypt to pay for the sins, to cover the sins. And then he paid the full price by redeeming our lives, all of the Christians who obey and love God, who he is called according to his purpose with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how he's paid. That's how he's redeemed us. Verse 16, the water saw you. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. Now, just by the way, waters can be men, peoples, languages, and tongues, right? But when it's talking about floods or the depths, it could be talking about armies. And so here it talks about the, the waters being many peoples, and they were afraid, and the depths were also troubled. And the clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows flew here and there. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world, and the earth trembled. Your way is in the sea, and your path is in the great waters, and your footsteps are not known. Does this remind you of something that might have happened after this case in Psalm 77? Jesus Christ walked on the waters, and when he commanded, the waters and wind stood still. They were afraid of Jesus Christ. And his path was in the waters, and his footsteps were not seen. They were covered by the waters. Interesting. And what does that refer to? Is that all through mankind, Jesus Christ is walking through all of mankind, all down through time, 
and having a positive effect in our lives. This perceived betrayal that, uh, that Asaph foisted erroneously upon God, he saw beyond it and he understood his error, the error of his ways. And he was no longer caught in this wrong concept of blaming or God and feeling as if he was betrayed. The last verse is, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, like a flock. God takes us in safety. The way may look treacherous. The way may look bad and wrong. And yet, He leads us through the many waters to success, to the kingdom of heaven by which He's leading us to. So, there's no more negative self-talk here. He's now past these feelings of wrong thinking and, and erroneously blaming God, right? And, and so we can thank God that He gives us repentance. So, Matthew 10, let's go back to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, it talks about a man's family. And this is very poignant because this will help us to bring this home to a personal level to us. Matthew 10, 33-36. But whoever shall deny me, is that not a betrayal of Jesus? Before men, that one I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And verse 36 is key here. And a man's enemies shall be those of his own household. Luke 21, 16 through 17. Luke 21, 16 and 17. But you shall be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they shall put some of you to death, and you shall be hated by all because of my name. It's terrible to think that some of our own family members could betray us and have us put to death. But that's what it says, that our own relatives might turn us in and and cause us to be killed, martyred. And they can think that they're doing God a service. Perhaps we may be betrayers to others in our family. Or more specifically, we could be betrayers to others in the family of God, in the household of faith. Maybe we backstab somebody. You know, maybe you have a wicked stepmother in your family, right? But maybe we are that wicked stepmother to somebody else. Sad for us to think about. But have we ever been angry with our brother without a cause? Look, if we do not continue to keep our hand out of the dish, and we can we will continue to sin and we will be continue to betray Jesus by putting him to death afresh. Are we not in the household of faith? 
Yes. What is that household? Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, talks about that we are fellow citizens in the household of God. And um, Ephesians 4 says that God is in you all. And 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that you are the temple of God. So if we are in God's temple and in the family of God, are we not betraying Jesus when we sin? We've already established that. But are we now becoming household enemies? Household betrayers? Just as Jesus forecasted and foretold that we would be told on and given up to be killed, <laughs> we do the same exact thing to Jesus the Christ. We betray him through our sins and we cause him to be killed afresh. So just let me ask you, are there any other examples of betrayals in, in, in the Bible? Well, yes, there's plenty. Cain to Abel, a brother killed his own brother. At one point, Lot was to Abraham when he chose the better land and he, for himself. He was acting selfishly. Jacob to Esau. Rebekah, that was a brother on brother, but Rebekah, his mother, was a betrayer to Esau. David's own progeny, his household was in such disarray. There was so much dysfunction in David's house and his family. And, you know, brothers killing brothers and, you know, a brother compromising his sister. And then another brother, Absalom, killing that brother for compromising his sister. They were household enemies. We don't want to be that. It's important for us to intently avoid betraying God by sinning and having sinful thoughts and entertaining them and developing them. So if we can learn this lesson and take this lesson from Passover throughout the rest of the year of using this mnemonic aid to keep our hand out of the dish. Let's not put our hand in the dish and betray Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We avoid being an enemy of God, a household enemy of God, by choosing not to sin. <laughs> and, and through repentance, we can be at one again with God. So I wish you all a beautiful rest of the Sabbath.